G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we'll conclude our series on the Eureka Rebellion. We've spoken previously about the gold rushes, the problems with the rules and regulations on the gold fields, and the specific grievances which tipped over into open confrontation on the Ballarat Goldfield on December 3rd, 1854. Today we'll turn our attention to the aftermath and reflect on some of the reforms that are often attributed to the Eureka Stockade. If you are new to the Australian Histories podcast, but interested in this Eureka story, I would suggest that you listen first to episode 29, that's Eureka Part 1, Gold, which gives you a brief background to the gold rushes starting in Australia, and the way the authorities tried to manage that rush, and then 30, 31 and 32, which gives you a taste of the deterioration of relations on the Ballarat goldfield, and the confrontation that took place there at the Eureka Stockade. We left the previous episode with a large contingent of the British Army arriving to take charge under martial law in and around Ballarat. More than 120 men from the stockade, or considered to be sympathisers of the stockade troublemakers, were at the camp under arrest, with serious charges pending. Troopers combed the goldfields for several days, looking for more insurgents, and continued to assault civilians they encountered there. Diggers and others killed in the confrontation were being buried. Others were recuperating from their wounds, and some persons of interest to the government had been spirited away into hiding and were now being hunted. In the last episodes, we talked about the government camp commissioners having been encouraged by Hotham to use the Riot Act to control any rabble on the goldfields. That Riot Act could be applied to any group of 12 or more who had gathered together in, quote, riots or tumults, unquote. As Hocking suggested, this could therefore be applied to pretty much any meeting where the attendees might vent their displeasure. Reading the act to any such gathering gave them one hour to disperse, after which the authorities could then take any action, indemnified from any claims of damage, including physical injury or even death of the rioters. It was a pretty disturbing act, and it could encourage pretty reckless behaviour without concern for the consequences. There was certainly plenty of brutality being enacted on December 3rd by some soldiers and police in and around the stockade, and those doing so clearly had no fear of any legal comeback. Actually, Hocking records that a magistrate had gone along with Major Thomas to the stockade on the morning of the 3rd, one assumes for the purpose of reading the Riot Act. And had he done so, perhaps those few drowsy men inside may have preferred to disperse or surrender. But we'll never know. The shot was fired before the Riot Act was read, and thus the militia were ordered to open fire. Whether they were in fact indemnified against the ensuing brutality was a point well debated, and the usual rules of war in relation to surrender were not adhered to either. And without the Riot Act being read, such actions could be seen as illegal perhaps. Hotham, though, did indemnify all the government actors afterwards, so the result was much the same in relation to individual responsibility for their actions. It's interesting to note that on the same morning that the troopers were rounding up 
insurgents in and around the stockade at Ballarat, miners in nearby Bendigo, as yet unaware of the Eureka confrontation, were undertaking their own mass meeting there to protest once again their ongoing grievances. And Holyoke brought news of the scenes at Ballarat to that meeting. Representatives arranged to return with him to Ballarat to show their support. But by the following morning, news arrived that the diggers' cause was lost and of the troops and martial law, and afterwards supporters were unable to enter the area of the Ballarat goldfields. In Castlemaine and Bendigo, miners, while perhaps fearful of further government reprisals to their protests, were encouraged to show solidarity with the fallen and to keep up their objections. They were to wear black armbands and the red ribbon of solidarity used previously at Bendigo, and to generally keep up the protests so that those at the stockade had not fallen in vain. Just as miners across the goldfields were now nervous, so were the troopers. Many were concerned by rumours of groups of miners preparing to march on government camps and take their revenge. Indeed, the public in Melbourne were fearful that a full-blown rebellion might be underway, and perhaps even coming their way. Such sentiments were being published in the papers already, though facts were still quite thin on the ground. The report that miners were armed, drilled military style and marching to Melbourne under a new flag was being spread around town, and public meetings for the, quote, protection of the city were being arranged for Tuesday the 5th. I've put a copy of one of those posters advertising these meetings on the Australian Histories podcast website. No one quite knew what might happen next, and Hotham himself called for loyalty and social order amongst the good people of Victoria while the government troops headed out to put a lid on Ballarat. And once again, special constables were called for, to be ready should any rebel army materialise in the city. But the public meeting on the 5th was interesting. While there was certainly some alarm at the idea of armed rebellion, it became clear there was also quite a bit of sympathy for the diggers' cause. And, no doubt, there was news now of the actual confrontation itself coming through. People were now clearer about it being a complete military rout rather than a viable rebellion bringing the fight to Melbourne. With the Victorian legislators in attendance and thousands of people spilling over into the streets, the resolutions put forward indicated that the people supported the government and there would be no appetite for any overthrow here. But there was also late resolutions supporting the acknowledgement of the diggers' grievances and calling on the government to act on these issues urgently. The pragmatic at the meeting might have understood that dealing with these long, festering issues might be the quickest and most viable way of taking any steam out of any further uprising. But the ever-inflexible authorities saw it as simply the views of a few agitators infiltrating the meeting. Their blindness to the public mood remained astounding. On the Ballarat Goldfields on the 5th, martial law was in place with the 800-strong army presence dissuading any further action, should anyone still have the stomach for it. But it was clear pretty quickly that there was no threat from there, at least. Indeed, the Eureka diggings were almost deserted. Maloney records one man leaving the goldfield after witnessing the shocking behaviour of the government of Victoria. Quote, I am horrified at what I witnessed, and I did not see the worst of it. I could not breathe the blood-tainted air of the diggings, and I have left them forever, unquote. Those who stayed risked injury or worse from the still hyped-up Goldfields police and troopers, 
who continued to hunt for stockade sympathisers, and who would fire indiscriminately at any object that moved in the evenings. Hocking records one woman attending to her baby inside her tent, hearing a shot and feeling the ball pass through her hair, then seeing another pierce her child's leg. There were apparently many stories like this over the next few days. The following day, the 6th, another huge meeting was held in Melbourne. This time the crowd heard, sometimes exaggerated it must be said, of the fall of the stockade and the loss of life resulting. Though many in attendance would not have supported the miners in taking up arms, they would still have been appalled at the heavy-handed government response. Faulkner, Blair and Embling were prominent speakers, and there was a definite air of resentment against Hotham and his government already evident, despite, or perhaps because of, there being 300 police assigned to monitoring that very meeting. Hocking wrote, quote, Hotham had brought the entire colony to the point where one man stood face to face against his brother. And for what? The protection of the reputation and careers of a bunch of corrupted officials on the Ballarat diggings. His show of force was totally unnecessary on that day. Unquote. Meetings with similar sentiments occurred at Geelong and Bendigo as well, now condemning the government's handling of the miners' grievances and the resulting confrontation, thus exposing the colony to the potential for civil war. These were clearly bad laws, and they had been poorly policed, and the government should have acted to rectify the problems brought to their attention time and again over the years and months leading up to the building of the stockade. No one wanted a breakdown of law and order, as evidenced by the positive response this time to the call for special constables to stand by. Many did answer that call, wishing to protect their city and its people, should the rebellion grow, but they also wanted their government to respond to the unreasonable and untenable arrangements. The government expected the citizens to behave in a lawful and respectful way, but in return the government should respond to the grievances of its citizens in a way Hotham had clearly failed to do. He ignored the pleas, instead allowing tempers to escalate to a point that the people declared they would take no more, and the government turned on its own citizens. That was unacceptable. Quote, the barbarisms perpetrated in the name of authority, once known, so revolted the community of Victoria that any return to the old ways was impossible. Unquote. Maloney recorded comment from one John Dunmore Lang, a former legislative councillor for Port Phillip, a patriot and a well-informed public figure, noting that in Lang's opinion, it was the form of the government which had caused the problems, because it had allowed complete dominance by the officials and nominees, checked only by the powerful squatters. There was no room for the voice of the people in this arrangement, and he stated, rather grandly, <laughs> there had not been a more incapable, a more extravagant, a more unprincipled or a more unjust and oppressive government in Christendom. The goldfields had been managed by folly, impotence, injustice and oppression, which the diggers could stand no longer, and the result was insurrection and bloodshed. Unquote. Hotham was supposed to be taking advice from his colonial secretary, Foster, but, as was his way, it seems Hotham ignored his advice on these matters too, and Foster resigned in the days following the uprising. Now, whether he was pushed out to be Hotham's scapegoat, or whether he resigned in disgust, is not clear, according to Maloney, but he was certainly tagged with a good share of the blame by the public. Hotham's actions were, of course, supported by the usual suspects, his legislative council early on at least. 
These men, who had also resisted any calls for reform, agreed with Hotham that, quote, Eureka was entirely caused by misguided men who had engaged in insurrection and fired on and killed some of Her Majesty's forces, unquote. No mention was made of the many civilian deaths, those involved in the uprising, and those who just happened to be in the area. And the squatter community also supported Hotham. They wanted no action that might lead to land reform. But for much of the public, outrage at the avoidable situation and the news of the barbarous actions grew. As Jones noted, quote, the flow of history and ideas would place Eureka as the final kick against the goads of the penal mentality that some colonial governors and British politicians still held, unquote. Things must and would change. In fact, the Victorian government never really had anything to be concerned about on the goldfields. To quote Jones again, the remarkable thing about the Victorian gold rush initially was the very lack of lawlessness and civil disobedience. The mob rule and lynch justice that had made the 49ers in California so infamous was not to be repeated in Australia to any comparable degree, unquote. Jones hedges here a little, though, and it must be said that there were racial riots across a number of Victorian and New South Wales goldfields on a few occasions, usually involving persecution of the Chinese miners. And that's a story that really needs retelling in a future episode, too. Generalising outside of those incidents, though, the digger communities were more likely to welcome governing structures into their goldfields. In fact, one of the grievances was that the government services and protections that a citizen should expect, such as a police force to defend and serve them, were not being provided to the miners as they should. This was a disappointment and a problem for the majority of the mining population. Separatist republicanism was not something that most miners cared for, and it was only alluded to once things had become completely untenable with the authorities at Ballarat. Fortunately, Ballarat had calmed sufficiently that martial law was lifted only five days after the storming of the stockade, and the public panic subsided into a deeper reflection on the matter. With Nickel now having control of Ballarat, the previously corrupt authorities had lost their power and influence, and the diggers remaining, or returning to the goldfields, were ready to resume their work at their claims. A Melbourne paper suggested that, had the authorities been removed earlier in favour of Nickel, perhaps all the bloodshed would have been completely avoided, and it's likely that's the case. The majority of those arrested were released in the following days, but those deemed ringleaders were sent for trial in Melbourne. An outraged Hotham was determined to make great examples of these men. No matter the reasons for their behaviour, they had raised arms against Her Majesty's military, and this, for Hotham, was an act of high treason. They had armed themselves, built the stockade, drilled and prepared for battle under an alien flag. The perpetrators found guilty would hang, and the rule of law, always the paramount concern for the unnuanced and rigid Hotham, would be upheld. Many would see the bigger picture and suggest that reform and clemency might be the better option, but not Hotham. Fortunately for the men involved, the legal system allowed for jury trials. Their peers would consider the diggers' motivations and guilt. Their cause and grievances would be on trial too, to some extent, so there was some hope that the public view might be expressed there. Indeed, by January there was substantial public agitation calling for a complete amnesty for the charged men. And later, 
the Goldfields Commission report would recommend an amnesty for all involved in the stockade. But Hotham was determined the trials would go ahead, and it would have been a worrying time for the 13 men facing trial, knowing a guilty verdict would likely mean capital punishment. There were two laws that would be relevant in relation to the Eureka Stockade protagonists. Sedition and treason. Hocking describes sedition as, quote, the act of organising or encouraging to subvert or overthrow the government, unquote. So would encouraging the burning of licences and the boycotting of the arrangements under the corrupt governance system on the Eureka lead be an act of subverting the government? Treason was the act of plotting to overthrow the crown. As we know from centuries of stories of men hung, drawn and quartered for treason in Old Britain, this was a very serious and grievous crime. We know again from previous episodes that the Ballarat Reform League did record in their charter, quote, If Queen Victoria continues to act upon the ill advice of dishonest ministers and insists upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony, the Reform League will endeavour to supersede such royal prerogative by asserting that of the people, which is the most royal of all prerogatives, as the people are the only legitimate source of all political power, unquote. But I think those words fall short of an actual attempt to overthrow the crown. High treason, surely. Hocking suggests it was a gross overstatement to suggest the men were planning to overthrow the government and kill the Queen. But they were building the stockade. They were recruiting men, drilling under arms within the stockade, and preparing for a fight. And they had, despite apparently also flying the Union Jack on the flagpole, sworn allegiance to the Southern Cross there. This was exactly the kind of activity that might look seditious or treasonous, and so such charges being proved were not completely outside the realms of possibility. The men would need good legal representation, and meetings took place across the goldfields and in the cities to raise funds for the diggers' defence. And competent and passionate men did come forward to represent them. Pro bono, actually, such was the support for their cause. In a packed court on February 22, 1855, John Joseph was the first of the 13 to stand trial for treason. Maloney records that the prosecution challenged any potential juror that was Irish, obviously not wanting anyone with a suspect loyalty to the Crown hearing the case, and also rejected publicans and other, quote, questionable persons, unquote. Joseph's lawyers, on the other hand, were keen to reject those identified as gentlemen or merchants. The prosecution had hoped to show that it was Joseph who shot Captain Wise early in the clash. If you recall from the last episode, Wise was considered the first military casualty at the stockade from a shot wound sustained as the firing began, though he fought on at the time only to succumb to that injury a few weeks later. Several troopers gave evidence that they had seen Joseph firing at the time Wise fell, though one assumes several men would have been, and of course they could not prove the shot that wounded Wise was his. Being African-American, Joseph was perhaps rather more visually conspicuous in the stockade than most, though his lawyers argued there were several black men on the goldfields and it was unlikely any witness could identify Joseph definitively as the person they saw. It's interesting that he was the only American to be charged. McGill, the leader of the Californian Rangers, had taken off in the heat of battle and was later hidden by friends while the dust settled. Though his whereabouts were soon afterwards known, 
the authorities did not hunt him out, and no reward was ever offered for his capture. It seems that influential American businessmen made representations to the governor on behalf of McGill, and possibly other American diggers, and he was never charged or put on trial, or indeed disturbed at all. But the African-American John Joseph had no official or semi-official representation from his countrymen, and was instead first into the dock while his comrades rested at home. Why the Victorian government felt Joseph should stand charged when fellow American McGill, a leader and a very active member of the Eureka Rebellion, would not, is pure speculation, and why he did not receive the same support in representations to Hotham is unknown. But we do have to consider that being a man of colour may have had something to do with it, perhaps. Maloney records that there was certainly no racial hostility evident at the trial though his defence lawyer did draw on race and his Negro background, albeit an effort to develop his defence. Mainly, it rested on the contention, though, that as an American, he would not have had any concept of treason in his head, and though the prosecution worked hard to present their case, the jury found him not guilty in less than an hour of deliberation. The large crowd cheered loudly in the court, and the loud whooping so offended Judge Beckett that he had two in the crowd arrested and sentenced to a week in jail for contempt. The remainder of the celebratory crowd carried the freedman out of the court, triumphant. On February 28, John Manning was next to stand. A digger at Ballarat and a journalist, producing sometimes scathing articles, he was certainly a major target. His jury also contained no, quote, gentlemen or Irish, but nine were of the working class. Though he had written several articles that might be deemed seditious, he was also quickly acquitted. Two trials in, and it appeared public sympathy was with the men. The lack of success disturbed the Attorney-General, and he stayed the next cases in order to bring in a completely new list of jurymen to draw on. This attempt to tweak the jury selection, hoping to get better results with the following cases, was a clear manipulation of the system, and the public saw right through it, the papers condemning his behaviour. They also noted that Hotham had certainly allowed some special arrangements for the Americans, like McGill and others, though not Joseph, as we mentioned earlier, but that the other, quote, foreigners, such as Carboni, Verne and Venick, were most definitely to be made an example of. Irishman Timothy Hayes was next on March 19. Hayes, long involved in the goldfield politics and considered the overall ringleader, had been arrested outside the stockade on the day and was now standing before Judge Redmond Barry. Barry was a tremendously important figure in the development of the City of Melbourne, involved in the creation of the University of Melbourne and the State Library of Victoria, amongst other things. And though Irish himself, he was certainly no fan of the working-class Irish Catholics and would likely not have had much sympathy for Hayes. Those who listened to the episodes on the Kelly Gang will recall that nearly 20 years later, it would be Judge Redmond Barry that jailed Alan Kelly and presided over the final court case of Ned Kelly. Hayes's jury was largely middle class, tradesmen and small businessmen and such. The prosecution focused on his role in inciting the miners to burn their licences. But interestingly, when he was arrested on the 3rd, he was found to have a current licence on his person. And Father Smythe gave evidence that Hayes had tried to call that meeting to order before the licences were burnt at the urging of others. 
Finally, evidence was given showing that he was not even in the stockade that morning, being arrested outside, and the prosecution case that he was leading the fight weakened further. Hayes was also acquitted, the jury taking only half an hour to make their decision. March 21st, Raffaello Carboni also stood before Judge Redmond Barry. Though there were plenty of authorities who felt the leading enemies in this rebellion were subjects of the Queen, Hotham was convinced a large part of the blame for the uprising should rest with the foreigners, who had been stirring up the good citizens of Britain's colonies. Carboni was one of those well-known activist foreigners. Though he would certainly be front and centre in this role, as his reputation as a freedom fighter in Europe was well known, he was also well known here and visible in regularly attempting to negotiate respectfully with the authorities on the goldfields. Now whether that made him treasonous was about to be tested. His lawyer argued that while a prominent, albeit recent, member of the Ballarat Reform League, Carboni took no part in the battle on the 3rd. He was one of the representatives pleading with the authorities to the last, asking them to act in a way that would de-escalate the tensions and avoid any confrontation. He reminded Commissioner Reid that amongst the foreigners he could speak for, there was no interest in rebellion. This disturbance was about resistance to the licence fee and the policing. In fact, on the day they stormed the stockade, Carboni had spent most of the morning up his chimney, hiding from the chaos taking place around him, emerging only after the troops had left to tend the injured. His hut was outside the stockade, and like Hayes, he also had a current licence and thus it was a hard argument to prove that he was actively resisting the law and fighting to overthrow the Crown. Despite Barry summing up at length, as Maloney put it, and warning the jury after a series of thunderclaps were heard in court that the eye of heaven was upon their deliberations, once again the jury failed to accept the false testimony against them from the spies and government agents. Returning their verdict in less than 20 minutes, Carboni also walked from the court a free man. He recorded, though, that even those four months in prison awaiting trial had permanently ruined his health. Dutchman Jan Fennick noted in the age as, quote, another of the foreign anarchists, unquote, was tried and acquitted on March 22nd. And with Tui and Beatty likewise, the following day, the prosecution must have seen the likelihood of any convictions fading by now. Interestingly, in another link to the Kelly story I told early in the Australian Histories podcast episodes, amongst the jury for Venick was a grocer named Graham Berry. Berry later became a leader on the more radical side of politics and served as Premier of Victoria between August and October 1875, then May 1877 to March 1880, with a final spell from August 80 to July 81. So, as an aside, there is nothing new in the revolving door for political leadership, I see. <laughs> and you may remember, Berry was therefore in that role of Premier for a good part of the Kelly outbreak. Caulfield records a surviving physical description of Vinnick, depicting him as having pierced ears, several scars, and missing part of his thumb on the right hand. OK, well he's sounding quite like a pirate to me now. <laughs> The 26th saw Dignam discharged without a trial. It seems the prosecution conceded there was not enough evidence for conviction there after all. Maloney suggests that the trials served to reveal a system of espionage in the goldfields, to expose some of the many acts of revenge and brutality that was meted out by the troops and the police. 
and to further illustrate the acts of provocation that led to the diggers building the stockade. He suggests the deliberate plans by the attacking military and police to assault, punish and destroy the belongings of those in and near the stockade, along with the atrocities against human life, ensured that the public became more aware of their overreaction and heavy-handedness in the storming of the stockade. It was seen more and more as a totally unreasonable attack. The many perjuries being stated in court by the government witnesses, the manipulating of the jury system, the deliberate attempts at perverting justice, just made the public more determined to see these men walk free. Having your own government behaving in such an appalling way would probably make many previously loyal men think of republicanism at this point. By now, the prosecution could see that their evidence was weak and unreliable and that the juries were just unwilling to convict these men on such a heinous charge as treason. Hotham was advised that to continue the trials would open themselves up to, quote, derision and mockery and that it would be most prudent to desist, unquote. But, you know... In yet another display of his nuance-free grasp of his governing role and the public mood, he insisted on pressing on. On March 27th, the last five, Campbell, Malloy, Phelan, Reed and Sorensen, were all brought to trial and acquitted. Dull! The Eureka diggers had been victorious at the moral victory, if defeated physically at the stockade. When the British government began receiving more information and reports, it became clear just how badly the whole lead-up, the Eureka incident and the trials had been managed. The deliciously named British Secretary of State for the Colonies, Earl Grey, If you want to spoil your day, add the oil of Earl Grey, I'm reliably informed it's bergamot, what a mouthful. Is it perfume? Is it weed? Whatever it's supposed to be, it doesn't taste like tea. Should I drink it or dab it on? Can I swap it for a coffee? Or has all the water gone? It is hot, it is wet. Earl Grey suggested Hotham settle down with a good hot cup of tea. (laughs) No, he didn't, no. After reading the transcript of the first trial, he sent Hotham a confidential note, clearly reprimanding him for embarking on such severe charges in response to the outbreak. One of the defendants, journalist John Manning, later noted that he owed his life, quote, to the unbending honesty, independence and integrity of a Melbourne jury, and that the future history of Australia will remember them with honour, unquote. The people of Melbourne would do even more than that. They would demand more attentive responses from their representatives, starting with implementing the recommendations from the Goldfields Commission of Inquiry. So some reform would come at last, and we'll talk about that aftermath and those reforms in just a moment. One successful stockade-related trial had taken place before all the others, though, on January 23rd, and this success may have given Hotham cause to anticipate a good result in the treason trials. Henry Seacamp, the editor of the staunchly pro-minor Ballarat Times, had no doubt long been a thorn in the side of the government. His recent editorials strongly supported the actions of the Ballarat Reform League and praised the Eureka flag as a symbol of resistance. So the authorities took the opportunity of arresting him on December 4th as they were rounding up other sympathisers, and they tried him for sedition on January 23rd. 
As soon as he had heard of the siege at the stockade, Seacamp had started up the Ballarat Times presses, and he wrote, quote, This foul and bloody murder calls to high heaven for vengeance, terrible and immediate, unquote. So clearly they couldn't leave him there to fire up even more passion and draw more men to the cause. However, they did leave his wife Clara Duval behind, and that was a miscalculation. Clara went ahead and published his words later that morning, and keeping the paper operating, she continued to defiantly publish many fiery and powerful editorials in the weeks that followed, much to the irritation of Hotham, one assumes. Clara said of Seacamp, quote, If Peter Lawler was the sword of the movement, my husband was the pen, unquote. In the run-up to the stockade, he wrote of the miners, quote, striding towards freedom of the people of this country, and that the men would take the law into their own hands and enforce their principles, instead of looking for remedies where none can be found. Let them strike deep at the root of rottenness and reform the chief government, unquote. Of course, I'm no lawyer, but these words, while clearly supporting the men in their actions, do not seem particularly seditious to me. You would have imagined a good lawyer may have been able to get such a charge dismissed, but perhaps he didn't have one. Seacamp was, in fact, the first and only man to be found guilty and jailed in relation to the Eureka Uprising. Though the others were all acquitted and walked free, or had their charges dropped, and though the sentiment of the public was firmly against the government taking such action, when they should have been acting on the reforms that would have avoided it all in the first place, poor old Harry languished in the cells for three months of his six-month sentence, only being released early because Clara Duval had presented the then-softening government with a petition signed by 30,000 Victorians. Of course, some of the very prominent names from the stockade have been entirely missing from the trials, such as George Black, Frederick Verne, and stockade leader Peter Lawler. Lawler, of course, was in the stockade at the time the military assault began, and he was badly injured. As we mentioned last episode, he was hidden nearby until the police and troops had left the area and was then taken to Father Smythe's presbytery for medical treatment. Maloney states that Dr. Doyle and Dr. Stewart undertook the amputation of Lawler's left arm, so badly was it damaged. Lawler's heroic standing was still such that rumours of his brave behaviour circulated in the following months. A story spread that when his doctors hesitated with the amputation, Lawler himself was supposed to have rallied and fortified them, saying, Courage! Courage! Take it off! <laughs> well, it looks like no loss of blood or delirium, would stop the valiant Lawler from making rousing proclamations then. <laughs> he was hidden in another's home while he recovered from the surgery, and when well enough to travel, he was secretly removed to his fiancée's home in Geelong, where he remained in hiding until the whole legal process was over. Maloney notes Lawler being such a prominent player in the rebellion, and the one actually inciting men to arms, that he may well have had a problem in court and as an attractive character for the prosecution to try, a substantial reward of £200 was offered for his apprehension. Rewards were also offered for George Black, and for the second-in-command at the stockade, Frederick Verne. Verne, being so bombastic at the Ballarat meetings, frequently bragging about his military prowess and skills, and offering his German cohort as fighters, he actually drew a £500 reward while the other two had, quote, incited men to arms, unquote, Verne had apparently, 
unlawfully, rebelliously, and traitorously levied and arrayed armed men to make war on the Queen. (laughs) But the rewards were of no help. None were brought in before the trials began. It is likely that the authorities felt that those who would stand trial would serve as suitable deterrence, though, acting to suppress any further attempt at rebellion. So they just proceeded without the main leaders. As the failed trials drew to a close, and Hotham knew there was no appetite for this course of action, the rewards posted for Lawler and the others were revoked, and a general amnesty for all involved at Eureka was declared soon after. The long-promised commission of inquiry into the goldfield grievances had finally begun soon after the Eureka Rebellion in December of 1854. Overseen by Chairman William Westgarth, a member of the Legislative Council, Chief Commissioner of the Gold Department William Wright, and John Pascoe Faulkner, the influential and founding Melbourneian. The report was presented to Hotham in just three months, on March 27, 1855, just as the last of the trials were ending. The inquiry found... The licence fee was both inequitable and oppressive, and they recommended it be abolished. Well, blow me down with a feather. Who would have seen that coming, eh? It was to be replaced by a miner's right, costing one pound per annum, and by a tax to be levied on the export of gold. Thus, only those successful at finding Her Majesty's gold would have to pay further taxes on their bounty. Here at last was a reasonable solution, the very thing that had been lobbied for and recommended since before Fitzroy left, and which had been rejected time and again by the governors. The miners' right would also come with the right to vote, for representatives on the goldfields and for 12 new seats in the Legislative Assembly. Actually, the voting system that came along with the new Act was very interesting, and it's quite remarkable in its reach to a fair democratic system. In a rather large quote here from Hunt, the development is described like this. In 1855, Victoria removed property qualifications for the lower house, allowed working-class men to seek election to the legislature, and provided for an elected, rather than appointed, upper house. The other colonies gradually followed. William Nicholson, the proto-hipster who served its first cup of steam-powered coffee, now served on Victoria's Legislative Council, where he successfully lobbied for the secret ballot. In 1856, Victoria was the first place in the world to allow the voter to choose from a list of candidates in the privacy of a cosy little booth. London's Times labelled this anonymity in voting a vile system. Yet the Australian ballot, as now known, was adopted by Britain in 1872 and by American states from 1888. It is now used around the globe, unquote. Some may whinge about our compulsory voting and our pencils in the cardboard booths set up at your local primary school, but it's an amazingly resilient, fair and robust system, and all homegrown. If you have an interest in how and why we have the voting system we do, I recommend a really entertaining and informative late-night live podcast where historian Judith Brett talks about her book From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. It's a fascinating look at the developments here, and you'll be amazed about some of the things that went on, I'm sure. I'll put a link to that podcast and the details of her book in the reference list on the Australian Histories podcast webpage for those interested. Just to continue this aside for a moment more, 
Hunt also reminded us that these changes meant the politicians had to now consider the interests of the working classes, and following the labour shortages associated with the gold rush, workers did now have more bargaining power. As mentioned in the previous episodes, this led into stronger workers' representations, and that led in turn to the introduction of the eight-hour day in 1855, thanks to the stonemasons. The introduction of an eight-hour day was adopted across workplaces over the following years, until by 1920 it was in every Australian workplace, very early on by world standards. Now just one last thing, to needle my fellow potty producer over the ditch, Thomas, from History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. Hunt also records that, quote, While it is commonly believed that New Zealand led the world in granting women the vote in 1893, Victoria extended the vote to all persons who paid municipal rates in 1863. So put that in your stolen pavlova, New Zealand. Although, hang on, I may yet have to eat humble kiwi pie. Hunt goes on to say, quote, This was, of course, an embarrassing accident when it was pointed out that some women paid rates and those women were persons. Surprised politicians were thus forced to accept women voting in the 1864 Victorian election, unquote. But of course they quickly changed the wording back to men at the first opportunity, and normal programming resumed. Fortunately, the misogynist jerk quota in Parliament reduced a little by 1894, and women did begin getting the vote from them onwards across Australia, a year after the New Zealanders. Again, it was a really interesting set of developments actually, I do encourage you to listen to that late-night live potty I recommended previously. Okay, back to the Eureka story now. The Commission's investigations also found that the treatment of the miners was, quote, repugnant to British experience and derogatory to the manly feeling of independence, unquote. A rather scathing reflection of the activities of the police, troopers and judicial authorities on the goldfields. The Goldfield Commissioners would be replaced with local wardens and elected mining courts, and the camp was to be disbanded. The new authorities would live amongst their community, just like civilised people, thus removing the hierarchy of class barriers and corruption that had been so toxic at Ballarat. Further recommendations on land availability were made so that diggers might settle and farm and be able to better provide for their families. The Victorian government moved immediately to get a number of the recommendations and suggestions into operation. There would be no further need for the people to continue to agitate over these matters, and things would be expected to calm and stay calm. While the Commission did condemn the people for taking up arms, saying that such behaviour injured their cause, they did note, quote, "...the tendencies to serious outbreak amongst masses of population are usually a signal that the government is at fault, as well as the people, unquote. Though, as Maloney says, the people had patiently been pushing their cause for three years before the mood finally boiled over into rebellion, how long should one reasonably have to live with a totally resistant and unmoving government? Peter Lawler wrote angrily to the age to ask just that. Why had no consideration been given to all those many approaches in the previous years? Why had no action been taken... Quote, before this bloody tragedy took place, unquote. We tend to think of our Eureka Rebellion as resulting pretty directly in substantial political change, and so it did. These long-called-for reforms were enacted. 
In failing to listen to their people, the government had actually aided in fueling this unrest and placed an unhappy wedge between the people and their queen. Now the public mood was strongly impacting on Hotham. Maloney records him admitting that the system itself was unsuitable and that at times the behaviour of the young officers on the goldfield may have angered the diggers, often as high-born as themselves. But it's not much of a concession, is it, really? Sounds like he's implying it would have been okay if it were only the working classes being bullied at Ballarat. The age summed up Hotham's legacy, stating, quote, In the short period of seven or eight months, he has managed to alienate the sympathies of every class in the colony. And I beg to differ here. I think he was still pretty solid with the landowners and the squatters. They continued, quote, He's earned a character for contemptible official treachery and evasion and has brought the good faith of the government into disrepute by a systematic breach of contract, unquote. By mid-year, most recommended changes had been put in place. In July of 1855, in a nice twist, Carboni became the first elected mining warden to the Ballarat local court, charged with adjudicating on local mining disputes. He wrote up his memoir on the Eureka Stockade and had it published by the end of that year. And then he left Australia, for some more world travel and more activism back in Italy, dying in Rome in October of 1875. On November 10th, 1855, Humphrey and Lawler were both elected unopposed to the Legislative Council of Victoria, representing Ballarat. Hocking notes that Hotham would then have been facing across the chamber the very men who had created the Ballarat Reform League and instigated the Eureka Stockade, despite his efforts to have them all hung for treason. For a successful military man, this poor showing at governing, and this perpetually humiliating reminder in his workplace, must have been quite the come-down for Hotham. As Jones put it, quote, In the pages of history, the line between the traitor and the patriot is sometimes paper-thin. Despite Hotham's best efforts, the diggers had landed safely in the latter camp, and the public memory has kept them there ever since, unquote. Hotham died on December 31st, 1855, only a year after the stockade, and he is buried at the Melbourne General Cemetery. Hotham's monument remains an impressive sight at the Melbourne Cemetery, though the tallest parts were removed in 1966 after safety concerns, and are apparently in storage. His eventual replacement, Sir Henry Barclay, was said to have been very popular, communicating with and working for the people of Victoria. Humphrey served in the Victorian legislatures in various capacities until 1871. He died at Ballarat in 1891 and was buried at the Ballarat Old Cemetery. Lawler, though, turned out to be a surprising choice in Parliament, considering what you might expect from his early days at Eureka. Turns out he didn't always take up the cause of the common working man. When first representing his constituents, he began by explaining the actions at Eureka suggesting that they had acted for the common good against a corrupt and self-serving government. He'd called for compensation for victims of Eureka, which passed, and for miners to have the right to enter private property to seek gold, which did not. He opposed the government allocating £1,000 for Hotham's gravesite, saying, quote, There was sufficient monument already existing in the graves of the 30 individuals slain at Ballarat, unquote. Though, in the end, funds were granted. But in a move that lost Lawler popularity amongst his digger supporters, he did vote against immediate franchise for the miners. 
instead arguing for a six-month residency first before they could be eligible to vote. Many felt let down by their expectation of his politics. He gave a speech in the council saying, quote, I would ask these gentlemen what they mean by the term democracy. Do they mean chartism or communism or republicanism? If so, I never was. I am not now, nor do I ever intend to be a democrat. But if a democrat means opposition to tyrannical press, a tyrannical people or a tyrannical government, then I have been, I am still and will ever remain a democrat. <laughs> he sounds just like a politician, doesn't he? His opinions proved less democratic than the diggers had wished. He was keen on voting to be associated with property ownership and was not a supporter of one man, one vote, as we might have assumed. Instead, he plumped for continuing with the plural voting concept, allowing a man as many votes as he had properties. Hmm, that's not something your working man is likely to be able to take advantage of, I think. To many, this seemed complete class treachery. As Hunt put it, quote, the loss of his left arm had made Layla swing to the right. <laughs> he was later to use Chinese workers as strike breakers in his mine at Clunes, when the union men dared to ask for Saturday afternoons off. Worker unions would be frowning pretty deeply at that, and one bloke said of him that the role of landowner and company director seemed to suit him more than that of rebel. After several months, the workers did finally win their shorter working week. He became less popular in Ballarat for these policies, and Wright says he was afterwards known as, quote, the turncoat conservative and capitalist mine owner, unquote. Though he continued in Parliament until his death in 1889, he wisely moved to represent seats away from Ballarat, where he stood a better chance of winning. His Australian Dictionary of Biography entry states, quote, Lawler's stance in Parliament appeared puzzlingly inconsistent. He was an early advocate of protection of local industry, believing that it would provide work for men no longer able to make a living on the goldfields, but he also supported assisted immigration. He supported the Land Acts, providing for selection from the squatters' runs, but then he urged sale by auction of both freehold agricultural land and grazing leases, declaring that the creation of a middle class of landed proprietors, able to employ labourers at reasonable wages was preferable to opening the land up in small lots to men without capital. These men might have been the struggling miners he'd recently been working with, perhaps. He supported reform for the Legislative Council, but opposed payment to its members, unquote. So there were bound to be many disappointed in his representations. There are several memorials related to the stockade, mainly in Ballarat, but various sources give a confused picture of their dates, so don't hold me to these. It looks like a major memorial was proposed for those who fell at the stockade in 1869 and funds were raised then. Maloney says it was not sited at the stockade, but rather on land that was simply clear and available in Ballarat, the town having been developed and substantially changed in that intervening time. It's at the Eureka Stockade Memorial Park, corner of Eureka and Stall Streets, Ballarat, and it was dedicated in December 1884 on the 30th anniversary. It's quite an odd structure, with cannons on the corners and looking quite military, really. A plaque naming the Fallen was not added until 1923. Twenty-two diggers and six soldiers are listed there, I believe, though you may remember from comments earlier this list was probably not complete. One quote gathered by Wright suggests 60 diggers may have died, and there will still be women and children to be recorded as well. We reflect a lot on the Fallen diggers when talking about Eureka, but the unnecessary confrontation also cost the lives of six soldiers 
who were doing their sworn duty for the Queen and country. It's interesting to note that the term diggers really strengthened after Eureka to encompass a suggestion of fairness, egalitarianism and mateship that would see you stand by your mates, your fellow diggers. And of course that term was widely used again throughout World War I, particularly in Gallipoli, to represent the same concept, brothers together, against the odds and a common enemy. Both New Zealanders and Australians then used that term, though it was more often applied to the Aussies, with the New Zealanders sometimes called Kiwis. In doing all this reading, it was just so frustrating to see how easily the deaths at the stockade might have been averted. The authorities seemed hell-bent on making a stand, punishing the diggers for their audacity. And the rebels themselves seemed like the biggest bunch of unprepared dunderheads, really, goading the British army to a fight with little chance of defending themselves. Hunt quotes historian O'Farrell, noting that Eureka was typical of many Irish rebellions, quote, just as incompetent, just as doomed, just as confused as to the objectives and ideology, and just as much a mixture of the glorious, the farcical and the stupid, unquote. It's hard to refute that with the pikes, the dodgy stockade, the lack of arms, ammo and food, and the digger army wandering back to their tents at night when any seasoned fighter might have anticipated an ambush at that time. It seems they were high on passion, but the cool heads being bumped out low on sensible planning. But then who knows, maybe a proper fighting force might have resulted in a more prolonged fight and even more casualties. It seems that memorialising and interpreting the history related to the Eureka story has always been fraught. There's been disagreement and division about what's appropriate to commemorate or include and who should be responsible for doing so. In 2013, the Eureka Centre was opened. On the actual site of the stockade, as far as it's known, if I have understood correctly, this centre was itself a redevelopment of an earlier incarnation, the Museum of Democracy at Eureka. The current centre has a cafe, bookshop, theatre, and an education studio with digital touchscreens retelling the story. And there are interesting artefacts to illustrate the era in the wall cases around too. But the main attraction was the impressive viewing room, which houses the remainder of the original flag on display. Now, I'm not really a person who responds emotionally to symbolic artefacts like that, in the way that I know various flags can be very moving for some people. But I have to say, seeing that giant, hand-sewn, rather beautiful artefact there was surprisingly moving. It's a little more than 60% intact, still quite vibrant in colour, and so much bigger than I'd imagined. I thought about those who would have been sewing it, by candlelight or gas lantern all those years ago, its short life in use and witness to the failed uprising, and the long time spent kicking around in storage, and I was very impressed with what remains. The other thing which fascinated me at the centre was a brief and almost hidden away video of the flag's conservation. I was hoping the video might be available somewhere online, but I haven't found it yet, though I will post a link to some other conservation information and videos in the reference list. The flag is very important to this story, I think, so I just wanted to spend a short while more on that. Reflecting on its unfurling at the meeting, Carboni was moved to say, quote, there's no flag in old Europe half as beautiful as the Southern Cross of the Ballarat Miners, unquote. I'm sure most Australians will be familiar with the design. Carboni was right. It really is beautiful and simple in its design and colours. It seems entirely appropriate for Australia and was constructed on the goldfields with passion by those supporting the Ballarat Reform League. Its origins are a little uncertain. 
Maloney suggests that Captain Ross, the young Canadian, some say he was also instrumental in its design, it looking a little like the official ensign of Quebec, apparently. Verne also recorded that the flag was, quote, made and wrought by English ladies. He says English, but of the most likely women involved, some would probably have more likely described themselves as Irish. Carboni also suggested that women created it. Other sources propose it may have been the local tent makers, Darton and Walker. If it was the women, the most likely candidates were Anastasia Hayes, Timothy Hayes's wife, a feisty woman who would later take on the Catholic Church over equal wages, Anastasia Withers and Anne Duke, though it may have required more hands, and certainly a good space and a well-lit work table, which some speculate may have been available to these women at the Catholic Church, where Hayes worked as a teacher. Claire Wright, in her wonderful book The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, has gathered some very interesting evidence about the flag, and while we may never know the answers definitively after all this time, we now have a better understanding. Known to us as the Eureka flag, or the Southern Cross flag, it was a hand-stitched, massive banner measuring 2.6 metres by 4 metres. That's 100 inches by 160 inches. When some conservation work was done in the 1970s, they found original pins still in place in the seams the very type that were a common part of a woman's sewing kit at the time. Australians get to see the beautiful Southern Cross constellation in our southern skies. With its kite-shaped star arrangement and the sideways tail pointing to the ground, it is an easy-to-find constellation that can provide a pointer to the South Pole. Many kids learn how to read it on dark nights out in the bush, a sort of rite of passage, perhaps. So the five-star flag design white on a blue background was an easy symbol that could instill an emotional link to the notable constellation familiar to those toiling outside the cities and spending their nights under the southern skies. Carboni wrote, quote, Irrespective of nationality, religion and colour, all could salute the Southern Cross as a refuge of all the oppressed from all the countries on earth, unquote. here endorsing it as a broad, egalitarian symbol of mateship for all who were labouring under the same conditions. While there was some similarity to the Quebec ensign, Wright notes that the original design was probably first inspired by stylizing the Southern Cross constellation onto the Latin Cross, adding a star at each extremity and one in the centre. The stars themselves are eight-pointed, most likely because that was the most reliable shape to cut out and sew easily as a pattern. The ease of construction would have been paramount if it was needed in haste. Wright quotes Kristen Phillips, one of the conservators who worked on it in 2010 and became very familiar with its construction, who suggested whoever made it was probably not working to a plan as such, but that its size was dictated by the dimensions of the fabric used. Quote, ordinary clothing fabric bought off the roll and cut economically, unquote. Dark blue plain weave cotton warp and wool weft with a cream cross of the same fabric. The stars were also cream coloured, but 100% wool. She thinks this means we can disregard the rather lascivious rumour that the stars were made from women's petticoats. Such items were rarely made from wool, and the cutting required would likely have cut across any previous petticoat seam, yet they are made from unseamed fabric. There's a short video of Kristen talking about the conservation process, which I will link to from my webpage if you're interested. Phillips calculated there were around 29 metres of seams, some double-stitched, so around 58 metres of actual sewing, with a person likely to be able to manage one metre in half an hour in good conditions. 
she calculated that at best it required more than 29 hours in the sewing alone, and prior there would need to be the pattern making, cutting, pinning, etc. She spoke about the actual logistics of working across such a large expanse of fabric, with the intricate sewing required around the stars in particular. Even as an urgent task, she felt it would take well over 60 hours to complete. The actual time elapsed then might depend on the number of people who were working on it. In a book by Wickham et al. called The Eureka Flag, Our Starry Banner, the appendix lists the following data on the vexiology of the Eureka Flag. <laughs> and I've learnt a new word in researching Eureka. Those who study flags are vexiologists. Who knew? They describe the construction as, quote, inserted applique method, unquote, the pattern being visible from both sides but keeping the weight to a minimum, enhancing flight in light breezes. That would never occur to me, so someone there must have known what they were doing at least. They estimated the missing fabric could be about 31%, leaving 69 currently on display, and the centre star is 8% larger than the ones at the cross extremities. So the stunning new flag flew to advertise a few meetings and to remind those at the stockade of the oath they swore to each other. Captain Ross fell in the heat of battle and could no longer mind the mighty flag. When the fighting was over, Police Constable John King tore the flag down and it was said to have been trampled into the dust and bayoneted as a mark of their disrespect. Some pieces were cut off as souvenirs and the flag was exhibited at the trials, but afterwards it was returned to King and it remained with his family until 1895 when they presented it to the Ballarat Fine Art Gallery. There it spent much of its time in storage, but it was officially authenticated in 1967, and when it was on display in the gallery, it is said that keen eyes were able to see the bullet holes in it as it hung above the stairwell there. Some conservation occurred in the 1970s, but further substantial work was undertaken in 2010 before moving it to the purpose-built display. Considering its age and long storage, I thought it in really good condition, all things considered. It's now regarded as a very valuable historical artefact, an Australian icon. The final thing to say about the flag might be the way the design has been used since its symbolic significance was created in Ballarat, from militant unions to far-right groups. But they don't own it. It's the flag of the Eureka miners, symbolising fairness, egalitarianism, embracing men from all nations in an anti-authoritarianism stand against tyranny. It's a beautiful work of art and a reminder of our heritage, so I think we should all be able to celebrate it for its origins, and I think it should be reclaimed by all of us for its beauty. Poets like Henry Lawson, George Hartley and Victor Daly went on to romanticise the rebellion in their verse. John Ur wrote, quote, The role of Henry Lawson turning Eureka into a major theme of national literature is well known. His 1889 poem, simply called Eureka, spells out many of the memories Lawson assembled into his influential version of the Eureka legacy, including the multinational theme of identifying miners as coming from every state and nation that is known beneath the sun, and the brothers and mates promoted reform in the government so that the decade before Federation, Lawson could say that it was of such stuff the men were made who saw our nation born, unquote. Eureka became a legend that seemed to develop more deeply as the passing years softened and romanticised the horror of the real bloodshed that occurred in that uprising. I'll put a link to Henry Lawson's poem on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. The Diggers' Charter, developed by the Ballarat Reform League at Bakery Hill, is considered to be a precursor that led to our Australian parliamentary democracy. 
Indeed, UNESCO included it in the Memory of the World Register of Significant Historical Documents in 2006. I mean, it noted the principle of democracy operating in the British Constitution and called on that to be applied on the goldfields. That must put it up there with the Magna Carta, surely. A little Aussie version. (laughs) And that beautiful flag should be included in this acknowledgement of significance too. The author Mark Twain visited the Australian diggings years later in 1895, and he wrote afterwards of the Eureka Uprising, what may have been a slightly grandiose statement, quote, I think it may be called the finest thing in Australasian history. It was a revolution, small in size, but great politically. It was a strike for liberty, a struggle for liberty, a struggle for principle, a stand against oppression. It is another instance of a victory won by a battle lost. It adds an honourable page to history. The people know it and are proud of it. They keep green the memory of the men who fell at the Eureka Stockade. So there you go, our Eureka Rebellion. (laughs) Ballarat, though a dusty, pockmarked and environmentally ravaged landscape when the alluvial gold digging was at its peak, developed into a regal and elegant township over the years, being proclaimed a city in 1871. The surface and alluvial mining largely gave way to deep lead mining, often requiring groups or companies to fund the structures and the equipment that were needed to mine underground and to process the quartz on the surface. Hocking notes, in the seven years between 1853 and 1860, Ballarat mines produced 4,806,477 ounces of gold, just pipping Bendigo, who would later claim overall supremacy in gold production in Victoria. And of course Ballarat produced the famous Welcome Nugget, found on Bakery Hill in June 1858, weighing 2,217 ounces. At the time it was the largest single piece of solid gold found anywhere in the world. Though gold production continued, Ballarat also developed other industries, and the wealth and success of that era is reflected in the magnificent streetscapes still visible in the main city grid today. The novelist Anthony Trollope visited in 1872 and wrote, It struck me with more surprise than any other city in Australia. It's not only its youth, but that it is a town so well built, so well ordered, endowed with present advantages so great, and the like should have sprung up so quickly with no internal advantages of its own, other than gold. There's a lot at Ballarat to view and chase up for any history buff. The open-air museum there known as Sovereign Hill recreates the Ballarat 1850s gold mining settlements and would certainly be worth a visit if you're in Ballarat. So, that wraps up our look at the Eureka Stockade story. I found doing the research very interesting and there are lots of good books in my reference list. Hocking's pictorial history of the Eureka Stockade includes a lot of interesting illustrations and it also includes impressive lists of names of those involved, those who fell, including the soldiers, witnesses and other military personnel there at the time, and it might be of interest to anyone looking for family connections, perhaps. Peter Fitzsimon's book, Eureka! The Unfinished Revolution, has an epilogue which includes some really interesting information about the post-Eureka lives and deaths of many of those involved. Too much information for me to include here, sadly. And Caulfield's Eureka Encyclopedia was also very helpful. I'll provide a link again to the wonderful animated work of David Hunt. This one is of the Eureka story, but he's done a whole fun series with the National Museum of Australia that are really worth a look. I've also listed some links to the flag conservation people too. 
it might be worth your while to head over to australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and have a look at some of those this month. Next episode, I'll be looking to do a short, sharp, single episode story. Phew, something with a bit of humour, maybe a focus on the West. Finally, I'm going to recommend this month a podcast called Pax Britannica for those who like English history. Hosted by Samuel Hume, a PhD candidate in British Imperial History, it begins with the accession of James VI of Scotland to the throne of England. Pax Britannica then follows the people and events that created an empire that dominated the globe. It's a beautifully presented, easy-to-listen-to offering. I subscribe and listen to several history podcasts about Britain, and this one's definitely one of the favourites. As always, there'll be a link on the Australian Histories podcast webpage to the Pax Britannica podcast. Now, I know some folks were keen to know how long it took me to do an episode. This one took really a long time, and I'm running very late, and it's going over time, so I'm going to give you the information about that next episode. Thanks for joining me again this month. I hope you enjoyed Eureka. Have a safe and happy few weeks and I'll talk to you then. Cheers.